you have a Bible, I encourage you to open to Psalm 119. We're going to start by reading our passage together, Psalm 119, verse 145 to 152. You can follow along in your copy of the Scriptures. The Word of God says this, With my whole heart I cry, Answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you. Save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Father, this morning as we consider the words of the psalmist, we echo the prayer of the disciples. And they came to Jesus and they asked that he would teach them to pray. Lord, this morning we pray that you would teach us to pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes we come to the month of December and we pause whatever we're studying and we have a three, four week Christmas series. We're not going to do that this year. We're just going to plow through the end of Psalm 119. We have four more stanzas, including this morning. If your Bible's open, you can see uh, this morning we're in the Kof. Stanza next week will be the Resh stanza, and then the Sheen and Sheen. We'll talk about why those letters are combined together, and then lastly the Tav stanza. So we have four more Sundays, uh, including this morning in Psalm 119. Throughout this month, we do want to keep an eye to Christmas. We want to think about what it is that we're celebrating in the month of December, what it is we celebrate at the Christmas uh, season. We celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the miracle of the incarnation when God became man without ceasing to be God and the reason that he was born as a man was that he might live for us and the reason he lived for us is that he might die for us and not only did he die for us but three days later he was raised from the dead that we might have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and so we want to keep an eye towards all of those things even as we finish up in Psalm 119. If you've been with us you know that Psalm 119 is a poem. It's an acrostic poem, and it is built, all 22 stanzas, on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so each stanza is dedicated or built on one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And our letter this morning is the Hebrew letter kof. sort of makes a Q sound if you're an English speaker. And if you were reading in your copy of the Hebrew Scriptures, moving right to left, you would see uh, eight lines of poetry. The first letter of the first word in each of those lines would be this letter, Koth. So that's the stanza we're looking at. All total, Psalm 119 has 176 verses, and almost all of them, almost all of them make reference, each verse, to the written Word of God. And so in our particular stanza, if you just work from 145 down, you see in verse 145 he talks about statutes, in 146 testimonies, in 147 God's promise, 
In 149, you see the word justice. That's the Hebrew word mishpat. It's used throughout Psalm 119 to talk about God's word to his people. In 150, he talks about God's law. In 151, his commandments. In 152, his testimony. So he's talking about the word of God. And that reminds us that the dominant theme throughout Psalm 119 is the word of God. It's the Bible. It's the longest chapter of the Bible, and it's about the Bible. Anything and everything we say about Psalm 119 has to be framed in this broad understanding that the psalmist is talking to us about the Scriptures. In our particular stanza, the psalmist is also talking to us about prayer. And what I want you to see this morning is that the Word of God is intimately, intricately, inseparably connected to prayer. So here's the big idea of this stanza. God's people respond to God's Word with prayer. That may seem very basic and very elementary, but it's very profound and it's very important for you to understand this truth. God speaks to us in His Word. And God speaks to His people first. We don't initiate any kind of conversation with God. God speaks to His people first. God reveals Himself graciously, under no obligation to do so. He reveals Himself to His people, and God speaks to us in the Bible. When we pray rightly, we are responding to what God has said to us as His people in His Word. And that's how we experience a relationship with the one true God. That's how we communicate with Him. We listen to His Word in the Scriptures, and we respond to His Word with prayer. So let me start with a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this about prayer, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Notice what he did not say. He did not say prayer is as easy for the Christian. It's just second nature, just like breathing. You don't have to think about breathing. You just naturally, instinctively, intuitively do it. And Luther is not saying prayer is that easy. It just comes naturally to us. He's just saying it is tied up in what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Being a Christian means you are a praying person. Now, that's a nice quote talking about the Bible, we're talking about prayer, you know Martin Luther is important, the father of the Protestant Reformation, and here I am telling you prayer is tied up essentially in what it means to be a Christian. It's all nice, right? Can we just be honest for a moment and admit that for those of us who have tried to be serious about prayer, prayer is equal parts difficult and perplexing. Difficult and perplexing. If prayer seems as natural and easy to you as breathing, you're likely doing it wrong. It is hard work, and it is a confusing thing to try to wrap your mind around. Let's just think about the difficult part first. Why is prayer so difficult for us? Well, one reason is that as Americans, we're very busy people. We have a lot to do. We have things to check off our to-do list. We have a finite, limited amount of time, and prayer, you're not supposed to say this in church, but I'm just going to say what you've thought before, sometimes it feels like a waste of time. I have things that need to get done. I will pray 
later. I'm too busy. Or maybe we say, I won't pray later. I'll just couple it with some other activity and I'll try to multitask. I'll try to exercise and pray at the same time. Or I'll try to drive down 42nd Street and pray at the same time. Pretty easy. You pray for your life. You pray for your sanity. You pray for all sorts of things. But you understand, we, we sometimes try to couple prayer with something else, and we don't have a dedicated prayer time. We say, I'm just going to do it while I'm doing another thing. And if you're honest with yourself and I'm honest with myself, none of us are very good at multitasking. We might sort of glitch back and forth from one thing to the other. But our attention and our focus is only on one thing at a time. It's difficult. It's difficult because, can we just be honest? Sometimes you don't know what to pray. You find yourself feeling like, I feel like I ought to pray. I feel like this is a situation where we should pray, but I'm not sure exactly what I ought to say. So prayer is difficult. It's also perplexing. It's a perplexing thing. And I don't know how far down this rabbit hole you've gone in your brain, but listen, if you believe like I believe and like the Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign over everything that exists in this world, that He is omniscient and He knows the beginning and the middle and the end, equally well, that nothing catches him off guard, nothing surprises him, that his decrees and his counsels are established before the foundation of the world, then sometimes you're left scratching your head saying, what am I doing talking to him? If he knows everything, and he can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, and he has a plan that is perfect, why in the world am I even talking to him? It's a perplexing thing. It's also a perplexing thing. Maybe you've had this experience like I have to pray and to try to be devoted to prayer and to get done and to say your final amen and to say, I'm not sure those prayers made it past the ceiling. It's an act of faith to pray. You don't see God. You can't lay your hands on Him. You're just taking it on faith that He's listening. And that's a perplexing thing. When you begin to think, am I just speaking out to the air? Is anybody hearing this prayer? i just tell you some of my personal experience with prayer. When we lived in Kentucky, I graduated seminary and went back to seminary, back to back. And right as I began the second time, I took a job pastoring a small church outside of Frankfort, Kentucky, North Benson Baptist Church. And one of the things they told me when they called me to be their pastor is, you are now in charge of the Wednesday evening adult prayer meeting. And you know what I told them? I've never been to an adult prayer meeting in my whole life. Not one time. I grew up in church. Every Sunday, my mom worked at our church, involved in youth group, involved in camps, involved in mission trips. Never in my life had I gone to an adult prayer meeting. And here they are. They say to me, you're in charge. And I said, well, I don't know what we do. And they said, don't worry about it. Just show up. We'll fill you in. So I went, and they filled me in. And can I be honest about how it went for the first few weeks, first few months? We did a lot of talking about sick people. And that was about it. Who's sick? Who's not well? Who's in the hospital? Who's dying? Who's taking treatments? Who's not doing good? And it felt to me like the, the sharing escalated. Like maybe we would start off with something relatively small, so-and-so has the flu. 
And then we would move on to something a little more weighty. So-and-so's in the hospital. And then we would move on and we would try to essentially top each other for the most dramatic story and the most grave, dire situation. And it would get worse and worse. And finally, someone would share something so heavy in someone else's life that no one else would feel comfortable speaking up and saying, oh yeah, kind of have a cough. So we just kind of escalated until it got to the maximum level drama and then we would pray together. And I'll be honest with you about another thing. At times it felt like if we just had enough people praying for a thing that maybe God would do something. Like if it was just me, he's probably not going to listen to just me. But maybe if it was a couple of us or a whole Sunday school class or a whole church or a whole community or what if we had people connected via email chain outside of state or people around the world overseas praying for the same thing. At times it felt like we were operating on the assumption that if we only had enough people praying, God would answer our prayer. And up to a certain number or a quota, he was reluctant and he wasn't going to get off the couch of the universe to do anything about our concerns. But if we had five more people praying, maybe he would. This sort of sent me into a, a tizzy as a brand new pastor, leading this group, thinking, what is it that we're doing here? And why are we doing it in the first place? And how should we go about doing it? Should we just continue like we've always done it with this long list of sick people and that's about the extent of what we pray for? Or is there a different approach that we ought to take? My advice to you, pastorally speaking, before we get to Psalm 119 when it comes to prayer is twofold. Number one, do not assume that you know what you do, you're doing when you pray. Don't assume that it's just going to come naturally to you, that you're doing it right, that because grandma did it this way, that that's the way that you're supposed to do it. Be teachable. Be humble. Be like the disciples who went to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, we've listened to you pray, and we need you to teach us because we don't do it like you do it. Don't assume you know what you're doing. Secondly, learn from the Bible. Read the Bible to learn how to pray. Read prayers in the Bible. You can listen to people praying at various points in the Scriptures. You can listen to Moses and Hannah and David and Isaiah. You can listen to Peter. You can listen to Paul. You can listen to Mary. You can even listen to Jesus Himself. And when you listen to their prayers, your prayers ought to begin to be shaped and changed. When you think about what the Bible has to say specifically about prayer, in a passage like Psalm 119, this Kof stanza, it ought to shape the way that you think about prayer and the way that you actually pray. And so that's what we're talking about this morning, the Word of God and prayer and the relationship between those things. The question is this, what do we learn from prayer or about prayer from the Kof stanza? And I want you to see five things we learn about prayer. I hope they shape the way that you pray. Number one, prayer should be earnest. Earnest. I think that's the right word we want to use here. And I admit that it's a word we don't use much in everyday conversation. Now let me start with the definition. What does it mean for our prayers or for anything to be earnest? What does this word mean? Well, it simply means resulting from or showing sincere and intense conviction. 
When you're earnest about a thing, you are sincere about it, you genuinely care about it, and you are not casual about it in any way, shape, or form, but you are intense in your conviction about a particular thing. And the intensity that you feel in your convictions is a sincere thing. It's a genuine thing. That's what it means to be earnest. So notice how the psalmist says this, verse 145. With my whole heart, I cry. It's not half-hearted. He's not multitasking. He's not trying to check something off his list while he's praying. He is devoting his whole heart, all that he is and all that he has to this activity of prayer. It's earnest prayer. With my whole heart, I cry. He is crying out to the Lord. And what does he want? He wants God to answer him. I will keep your statutes, he says. Verse 146, I call to you, save me that I may observe your testimonies. Now some of you are thinking, I prayed like this. It was eighth grade and we had a math test. And I didn't study my multiplication facts or my whatever. And I prayed to God and I said, God, if you will answer my prayer and help me get an A, I promise I will study for the rest of the year and I will try my hardest. Or maybe you think, no, it wasn't just 8th grade. It was, like you said, 42nd Street. I was driving down the road and I got pulled over by a cop. And I didn't want my insurance to go up. And I said, I said to God, just be honest, you said, God, if, if you can get me off with a warning, just a warning, I won't say a bad word while I'm driving for at least three days. I'll be good for three days. I may not make it a whole week, but three days I'll be golden. Please, God, just get me off with a warning and I'll do this. And you barter with God, you negotiate with God. I'm just telling you that's not what the psalmist is doing here. He's not talking about trivial things. He's not just playing this, do this, I'll do that game. This is earnest prayer. He is crying out to God for salvation. It is sincere, it is intense, and it is built on deep conviction that he's in trouble and only God can save him. Earnest. Tried to think this week about something that depicted earnestness amongst us. Maybe the best example I saw over the last week is the debate over the college football playoff. Some of you were here last week when church started about 11 o'clock. And just be honest, at the beginning of the service, you weren't earnest about anything happening in this room. You were watching your phone because an announcement came out at 11 o'clock. Who's in and who's out? And the teams that are in is Alabama and Washington and Michigan and the team from Austin. And there's all these other teams that are out. All these other teams are out. Not in. And some of them are not happy about it. Florida State. They earnestly think that they should be in. They said, we didn't lose a game all year. We beat everybody we played. We did it with a backup quarterback. Next man up. We won our conference. We won the conference championship. We deserve to be in. And I'm just telling you, they're earnest about it. They want in. What about Georgia? Georgia says, we're the defending champs. We only lost to one team, and you put them in. This is the only loss we have. We should be in. We're the best conference. All these other conferences, they're like the junior leagues. Put us in. They want in. 
Ohio State. Ohio State says, we only lost one game, and it's to Michigan. They're in. Why did Texas get in? We should be in. Everyone made their case, and they were earnest about it. Meanwhile, Kansas Jayhawk fans were earnestly excited. This is no sarcasm. Earnestly excited to make a bowl, the guaranteed rate bowl, whatever that is, wherever it's played. We don't know, but we're excited to go. Y'all can debate the others, but we're earnestly excited to be involved. So there's all sorts of earnestness in this debate when it comes to football. Can we be honest just for a minute? There's probably a lot more earnestness about this debate than there is to many of our prayer lives. Earnestness resulting from or showing sincere and intense conviction. I think of Hannah in 1 Samuel goes to the tabernacle and she is pouring out her soul to the Lord. So much so, so intense, so earnest in her prayer that Eli looks at her, it's nine in the morning and he thinks she's drunk. She wasn't drunk. She was earnest. I think about Peter who had the faith to get out on the Sea of Galilee and to walk on the waves towards Jesus and took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink. And I promise you, when he called out, Lord, save me, it was earnest. Save me, because I'm in trouble. Prayer should be earnest. Number two, prayer should be continuous. Continuous. Verse 147. The psalmist says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. Verse 148, he says, My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. These two verses, these two phrases, before the dawn and before the watches of the night. Essentially in Hebrew, this is an idiomatic way of saying, I'm going to pray late into the night and I'm going to wake up early in the morning. I'm going to do it at times that are not the most convenient. Prayer will not be, that's what the psalmist is saying, prayer will not just be the thing that I do for 15 seconds before I have food. Now, I think it's a good practice for you to stop when you have food and to just say, God, thank you for this food. Thank you for providing my daily bread. Probably a good thing to do. The psalmist is saying, I'm not just going to pray when I go to church, when I go to the temple. I'm going to stay up late and wake up early. It's going to mark the entirety of my life. It's going to be continuous. I think this is what Paul was saying to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6 when Paul said to the the Ephesian Christians, I need you to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and all supplication for all the saints. I need you to do all the praying. Just pray. For what? Everything. How? In all the ways. This is what Paul said to the church in Thessalonica when he said, pray without ceasing. That does not mean that 24-7, 365, you never sleep, you never work, you never watch a football game, you never play with your kids. All you do is get on your knees and pray for the rest of your life. That's not what that verse means. That verse means that prayer is a continuous thing in your life. It's not segregated to mealtime. It's not segregated to church time. But it's something that marks the entirety of your life. I think about Nehemiah when I think about praying continually. 
If you haven't read the book of Nehemiah, people always talk about Nehemiah as this great leader. He's a fine leader. He's a great prayer, which is probably why he was a fine leader. He prays from chapter 1 all the way through the end of the book. Long prayers, short prayers. Planned prayers, spontaneous prayers. He prays about things that are really important. And he prays about things that to you probably seem very trivial. He is always praying, praying continually. I wonder if somebody followed us around for a week. Would they come away after a week saying that person prays without ceasing? Maybe they would say they pray when they eat. They pray when they're at church. Prayer should be continual. Number three, prayer should be biblical. Biblical. Verse 148, excuse me, 149. Psalmist says this in 149, Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. Here's my question in verse 149. Where did the psalmist get the idea that God might have steadfast love for his people? Did he dream that up? God had been telling his people for centuries that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't just have a little bit of it. He abounds in it. And where did the psalmist get the idea that God would be just, that he would draw the line straight? I don't think he made that up. I think he listened to what God had previously said about himself. God said, I'm abounding in steadfast love and mercy. I'm slow to anger, but I'm not going to clear the guilty. I'm a God of justice. And all the psalmist is doing here in verse 149 is he's taking what God has said about himself and he's turning it back into his prayer life. That's what it means to pray biblically. You see this, for example, in Exodus 32. Moses is praying for the Hebrew people. And one of the things that he says to God is, God, you can't destroy these people. You made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's in Genesis. He's praying biblically. God, this is what you said about yourself in the Bible. Do you know Jesus does this? As he's dying on the cross? When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the Bible. Psalm 22. And it's not just a psalm of everything's terrible, it's all gone terrible. you know, crazy, haywire, out of control. It's actually a psalm that ends up saying God's going to rule and He's going to reign. He's going to judge His enemies. It's all going to be great. That's what Jesus quotes. He's praying biblically. As your pastor, this is one of the things I really want you to get. These are the two fundamental spiritual disciplines that ought to be present in your life. Bible intake, listening to the Word of God, And prayer, responding to God and engaging in conversation with Him. Now, here's my fear. My fear is that most Christians in the United States think that prayer, if I can use this illustration, is about the churchy equivalent of a Ouija board. 
Like I'm going to throw something out there to God and then I'm going to wait for some sort of feeling to lead me one way or the other. And if I feel this way, we're going to go that way and we're going to say that God told me that thing. Or maybe they treat prayer like a magic eight ball. I think you're all too sophisticated to treat prayer uh, with an actual magic eight ball. But a lot of people sort of just say, God, I'm talking to you and I want to know this thing. And it's like they're shaking the magic eight ball waiting for the answer. Is it yes, no, maybe, wait, stop, I don't know, ask tomorrow, what? They want to know the answer. It's not how you have a conversation with God. You want to have a conversation with God, you open this book, and you read it, and you hear what God has said. It's God's Word. And then if you want to pray biblically, you respond based on what God has said about Himself, and how he's going to relate to his people. God speaks to us in his word. We respond to him in prayer. If you want to think about it like this, you could say, read your Bible prayerfully and pray with an open Bible. Those two things can't be separated. When you read your Bible, you ought to be thinking about your relationship with the Lord. You ought to talk to God about what you're reading. And when you're praying to God, you ought to have your Bible open so that you can hear from him because that's his word to his people. Prayer should be biblical. Number four, prayer should be honest. Should be honest. Verse 150, the psalmist says, They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. Studies show that people that use social media regularly feel a compulsion to check it first thing in the morning. You've slept, you've been disconnected, you feel like you need to know what's going on, so you pop on and you got to scroll through and see what you missed during the night hours, what you missed from the previous day. I want you to understand that when you talk to God about things going on in your life and when you're honest with Him, God already knows what's going on in your life. It's not as if God needs to get on the social media scroll and say, what did I miss last night? Oh my goodness, I didn't know. They had that baby. Missed that one. Oh my goodness, someone passed away. Must have been sleeping. That's not how God operates. That's not who God is. God doesn't need any information from me or for you, from you. He doesn't need us to fill him in. In fact, the Bible says the hairs of our head are numbered. It's a bigger task for some of us than others. But they're numbered. And he knows us. And He loves us more than birds, and He provides for the birds. He knows what the birds need. He knows what we need. He takes care of the flowers. We're more important than flowers. He knows us. He's going to provide for us. He doesn't need any information from us. And yet, can I tell you something the Bible says? God actually likes to hear from His people. He delights to hear from His people, not because He needs the information. Because He actually wants to have a relationship with His people. And he's spoken to us in his word, and we respond to him in prayer. If all you ever do is read God's word, it's a one-sided conversation. If all you ever do is pray and you never open your Bible, it's a one-sided conversation. When you read the word of God and you respond in prayer, you ought to be honest. Not anything that you're going to tell God that's going to catch him off guard. Did you hear what the psalmist says? Verse 150. 
they draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. Was God aware of that before the psalmist told him? Of course he was. God knew that. This did not escape his eye. And the psalmist is being honest with him. God, I'm in a pickle here. The people who persecute me with evil purpose, they are drawing near to me and they are far from your law. He's telling God about his situation, his circumstance. Think about Job in Job chapter 3. This is before he engages in a lot of conversation with his friends. We're going to talk about Job on Wednesday nights in the new year. Job 3, Job laments to God. Believe it or not, there's a lot of lamenting to God in the Bible. People being honest with God about what's happening in their life. Job does that in Job chapter 3. The psalmist does it in Psalm 10. Psalm 10, the psalmist says, God, why are the wicked prospering and your people seem to struggle? It seems like the wicked are getting away with everything. It seems like they're getting ahead and we're falling behind. You're being honest with God. You should be honest with God in your prayers. Last, prayer should be confident. Confident. Look what he says in 151 and 152. He says, you are near, O Lord. You're near. Remember what he said in the previous verse? The people who persecute me with evil intent, they're drawing near to me. i just be honest with you. The psalmist did not feel like God was near to him in this moment. What he felt like is the wicked people were near. But what he knows to be true, he is confident that the Lord is near to his people. And so he says it in verse 51. But you are near. Feels like they're near. But... You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. He's tempted to question that. And he's just reminding himself, and he's talking to God, and he's saying, I don't feel like you're close to me right now, but I know you haven't left me. I know that you're near, and I know that your commandments are true. Your word is true. It doesn't feel like it right now, but I know these things are true. Long have I known from your testimonies, verse 152, that you have founded them forever. They're eternally true. We saw this in verse 89. What I told you was my favorite verse. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Regardless of how I feel in the moment, your word is fixed, firmly fixed, fixed in the heavens forever. It's not contingent on how I feel in the moment, my situation or my circumstance. These things are true. The psalmist prays with confidence. I think it's why... In Hebrews 4, the author of Hebrews says, we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence because we have a great high priest who lived for us and who died for us, Jesus, the Son of God. It's the gospel. It's the gospel message that ultimately gives us confidence in prayer. We have a great high priest who died for our sins to reconcile us back into a right relationship with the Holy God. We can draw near to His throne with confidence. You know what Peter says? Peter says, you can take all your anxieties, and what he literally says is, you can throw them at God. You can cast them. That sounds more churchy, doesn't it? Cast your cares on Him. What it literally says is, throw them on God. Just take them all and chunk them on God. Why? It's because He cares for you. He cares for his people. 
And He wants you to draw near to the throne of grace. He wants our prayers to be earnest, continuous, biblical, honest, and confident. What a shame if we met in this room and we had five nice points about prayer and we closed our Bibles and we left without praying. We're just going to take a minute to pray. Nothing's going to get accomplished. It's not the point of praying. Nothing to check off a list. I don't have any more blanks for you to fill out. We're just going to take a minute to pray. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And we're going to have a few minutes to pray. Not too long ago, I read an expert who said this kind of thing is a terrible idea in a worship service. He said people are going to get bored and their mind is going to wander. Especially if it's close to lunch, they're going to be thinking about where they're going to lunch. They're hungry. Somebody's stomach is going to growl. person next to them is going to giggle. Kids are going to do what kids do, and they're going to wiggle and make noise. That's going to distract everybody. People are going to get their phone out. They're not going to take it seriously. They can't put their phone down. They're going to get their phone out. They're going to look. They're going to think about the football game later. This person said these sorts of things don't work. This is what the people of God do. We hear from God in His Word and we respond to Him in prayer. We have a relationship with Him. It's a real relationship. It's not one-sided. It's not that God does all the talking. He talks first. And we respond to Him in prayer. We don't just walk off without saying anything. We talk to Him. So I'm going to give you some prompts. And we're not going to drag this out. It's not going to be super long. But we're going to take a minute to pray. And I'm just going to ask you to be mindful and to pray with your Bible open and to read your Bible prayerfully for a few minutes. I'm going to direct you to pray about a few things and then I'm going to close us. So 